How many people remember the nursery rhyme or the rhyme from when you were a kid? Randy and Hansi sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage, right? We all know that rhyme, right, from our childhood. Uh, it was our first, for many of us, it was our first exposure to the arts. You know, it was like, oh, that's fancy, you rhymed. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, by the way. I think it was written by Shakespeare. I think it was one of his early attempts at a sonnet. Um, but that stupid little nursery rhyme actually captures the different stages of our relationship all in one little thing, right? It talks about dating and love and marriage and kids. Now, obviously, in a conversation like this, in a place like this, with this many people, we're not all in the same place. We're not all the same. Our journeys and experiences and life stages are all different. We all don't end up married with two and a half kids, nor do we all want to, and that's okay. But in this series, I'm gonna do my very best each and every week to go down a path that I think really hits as many of us as possible. And what that means though, is that there's a thousand footnotes and a thousand whatabouts and a thousand little things that could be added or explored, particular, you know, about, particulars about your situation or experience, but we just don't have the time or the ability, obviously in this context, to go down every one of those, um, chase every one of those rabbits. So I wanna give you permission right off the jump right here, right, right at the beginning of the month. Like if I say something that doesn't fit or apply to you or your situation, feel free to just kind of blow it off or ignore me. Uh, but I also have an ask of you as we get going, and that is this, that you would be open, that you would be honest with yourself, that you'd be honest with God and the people in your life, because I, I, I really believe sometime in the next few weeks, maybe even today, you're probably gonna be tempted to sort of blow things off that do apply to you, but they're just uncomfortable, that, that, that you, you wanna push back against. And so I just want to ask you to kind of just be open and move into the conversation and really asking yourself, what is God wanting to say to you in all of this? So I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, remember when we were all kids and, and you couldn't wait to grow up? Like everybody, every kid idealizes growing up, right? Being an adult, being an adult represents freedom because you can do whatever you want, right? There's, there's nobody there to tell you what to do. I'm going to stay up late every night. I'm going to play video games all day. I'm gonna, meet, I'm gonna eat all the ice cream I want anytime I want it, right? And, and to us, it feels like a foolproof plan with no downside, right? And, and all we see is that adults take their freedom for granted. And so because they're miserable and mean, they make up all these dumb rules for kids just to sort of ruin their fun. And so our assumption, especially when we're young, is that if something's good, it'd be even better without any boundaries, Right? It's only when we get older that your perspective changes where you realize like, if I don't actually go to bed at a decent time, I'm gonna hate my life tomorrow. It's the only way I can tolerate my coworkers, right? And also video games all day, please. I got bills to pay, like I gotta go to work. And ice cream, like all the ice cream you want all day, every day. Yeah, what about like blood, high blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetes? And also dairy gives me boo-boo belly and doesn't sit right with me all the time, right? So yeah, no thanks. Uh, but that's really hard to believe when you're eight years old, right? It takes a long time for us to learn that's what, that what, that's what good, that what's good for us and not good for us, and even longer for us to develop a healthy approach to the things that are good for us, right? And that's true of a lot of different things, but it's especially true in this conversation when it comes to love and romance, relationships, and sex. When we're little, right, we start off kind of actively disinterested. So I have a, 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 a 
Our youngest son is seven, getting ready to turn eight. His name's Kelton. And whenever he sees my wife and I, whenever he sees Hansi and I kiss, he, he makes the throw up sound. He's like, just like over and over and over again. I'm just like, dude, get over it. Um, and so I always try to like move over right in his line of sight and just like, you know, take it, take it real slow. Give him a nice long view. Um, <laughs> But as we grow up, we're bombarded with these wild and distorted messages about romance and sex. And so we develop wild and distorted assumptions and expectations about those things because we're not just learning from our parents and families, right? It's in our face everywhere we turn, especially in our culture, right? It's in our music stories, it's movies and shows and books and advertising and politics and humor. I mean, it's omnipresent, it's everywhere, especially the sex part. And the message that we're flooded with our entire lives is that this is gonna be the greatest thing you've ever done. And as soon as you're able to, you should have as much as you can with as many people as you can in as many ways as you can. And so we're obsessed with sex. Now, what's interesting is that for being as a culture so preoccupied with it, all the data and the studies show that fewer and fewer people are actually having it and even less are enjoying it and satisfied when they do. In fact, last year there was a study, this massive study that ended, it was a nine year study. And what they discovered is like from teenagers to old people, just drastic, massive drop-offs where humanity, especially in westernized cultures like ours, people just are not coupling, they're not having sex. And they're just like, we don't even know why, right? And the, the person I heard talking about it was like, look, if we observed like some animal in the animal kingdom that just all of a sudden stopped coupling and having sex and reproducing. Like we would be panicking and we'd be studying that, but we just act like it's no big deal. See, it seems like everybody's disillusioned, which is confusing, right? Because we've never had more access or resources related to sex. So how can so many people from so many different walks of life and life stages be so sexually dissatisfied? Well, is it possible that we're not the experts that we think we are and we're confused about how it works? Well, it kind of seems like it, right? We're not confused about the mechanics, right? You get that pretty quick. You're a natural. Even if you don't know how, you know how, right? But, but I think we're confused about the dynamics. See, because on the one hand, the anything goes crowd says that it's no big deal. It's purely physical. If nobody gets pregnant or gets a disease, if nobody gets hurt, then just go for it, man. Have fun. It's just physical. It's like ping pong or tackle football where the goal is to stay on the ground as long as possible. It's just as simple as that. On the other end of the spectrum, it isn't really helpful either, right? Because the nothing goes crowd says that sex is really cool for making babies, but you really shouldn't be so hung up on it, right? And they act like the only part that's a big deal is when you're doing something that God doesn't like. Now, the problem is that neither of those perspectives actually really seems to be helping us build happy, healthy relationships and finding the sexual fulfillment and satisfaction that everybody's chasing. So what does a healthy view of our sexuality actually look like? And maybe the bigger question is, does our sexual fulfillment even matter? Maybe the question you're asking is, why in the world are we talking about this in church? Well, as it turns out, God has a lot to say about this. You actually might be surprised as we go along. See, because when sex enters the human story, 
It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly positive. In fact, it's the first thing that God tells people to do. He creates Adam and Eve and he's like, I got something for you guys. You need to go have sex. Okay, technically he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, but there's really only one way to get your fruitful and multiply on, okay? See, we were sexual way before we were sinful. And that is the thing, right? That God could have created sex to be purely functional, purely procreational, but he didn't. Instead, he made it amazing and fun on purpose. I mean, just look around at the animal kingdom, right? Most animals reproduce in ways that are demonstrably not sexy, right? So God could have made us where we laid eggs, right? We didn't, he didn't have to make sex so enjoyable, but he did. And that was intentional because he loves us and he actually cares about us enjoying connection and intimacy. So check this out. I'm gonna make everybody really uncomfortable because we're gonna read from the forbidden book of the Bible this morning, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter four. This is in the Bible, you guys. So um, if you don't know, the Song of Solomon is basically a poem, like a, a writing between two, two lovers. Um, and they kind of write back and forth and or talk back and forth, but you'll, you'll, get the, you'll get the gist of it as we go. All right, Song of Solomon chapter four. We're gonna read just a, a couple of different excerpts from this chapter. And this is the whole book is full of this. But he says, you are my beautiful you are beautiful, my darling, beyond, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair, by the way, guys, he, he gives a lot of like compliments and metaphors. And so if you want to take some notes, you might want to try some of these on your lady, right? Like your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats. <laughs> guys, you want to get her in the mood, just be like, babe, your hair is flowing like a flock of goats. Right, winding down the slopes of Gilead. This is my favorite one in verse two. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Watch this. Each tooth matched with its own twin. You know what he's saying is, you got all your teeth. There's not one tooth standing by itself. Right, this was written like 3,000 years ago. Okay, dental care wasn't what we, so he's like, one of the reasons I love you is because you got all your teeth. He says, verse three, your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. I don't even know what that means. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. All right, now you're getting, now he's getting the hang of it, right? He says, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. And this is the, the, the kicker right here. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices. Try that one on this week, guys. Send that in a text. Hey, babe, I just want you to know your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, not just any spices, rare spices. I mean, this dude is a baller, right? All the metaphors, like, don't, they don't mean that much to us, but he is smooth. How do we know? Just look at her response. This is probably the most uncomfortable part. Verse 60, this is just a couple of verses later. She says in response, awake north wind, rise up south wind, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love, and taste its finest fruits. Again, I don't know what all that means. I have a pretty good guess, 
But I do know that these people should stop talking and go get it on because they are way down that road. But I think when we read stuff like that, we imagine this giant record scratch in heaven and God sort of gasping like, oh my God, how did that get in there? Who let that slip into the Bible? But I have news for you. God isn't appalled by the nature of our sexuality or the strength of our desire. He revels in it because he created it. So he included erotic poetry depicting a sex scene between a married couple in the Bible. And he did that so that we'd have a picture of how amazing and exciting that he intended our connection and intimacy and sexuality with one another to be. Now, maybe you've been going to church a long time. Maybe you're new to church and you're like, this is the most exciting church moment I have ever had. Right, and so we're like, yeah, that, I mean, so that's it. God's all about it. That's all I needed to know. What are we waiting for? What's the problem? Let's get going. Well, just like when we were kids, like our tendency is to think that if something's good, it'd be even better without boundaries, which is where things start to come apart, right? And, and that's exactly how the Roman culture in the New Testament approached sex. In, in fact, in, in Athens, they came up with this philosophy in Rome called dualism. And dualism was this belief that your body has nothing to do with your soul, that they're completely separate, right? That, that sex, and so their approach to sex was it's amazing, but it's just a physical act, right? We, we act like that, that idea that we all believe, that a lot of people in our culture believe that it's just physical, that it's new. No, it's been around a couple thousand years. And so they believed that it was just physical, right? So it's no big deal who you're doing it with. In fact, uh, uh, the other part of, of that factored in for them is that one of their gods, Aphrodite, she was the, the goddess of sexuality and, and she had this, they had built a massive temple to Aphrodite and that temple was stocked at any one time with, with a thousand prostitutes, and so people would travel all from all over to Aphrodite's temple to worship God by having sex with a prostitute. And so the attitude, the pervasive attitude in the Roman culture was, it's just physical. So when you get hungry, you eat. And when you get horny, you just go to a prostitute. What's the big deal? It's just sex. And we know this is the way they thought because of what the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians when he established a church in the city where Aphrodite's temple was. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. And he writes, he says, do you not know? And he says that because they didn't know which gives you an idea of, you know, of the kind of people who went to this church. People who would hear what he was saying and go, oh, huh, like I, it would have never have occurred to me that sex with a prostitute or sexing up whoever I want whenever I'm in the mood isn't a good idea. Like that, what are you talking about? But Paul is actually trying to get them to understand that the body and the soul aren't separate. And so he says that sexuality, like that, that he uses this word unites, right? He, and what he's saying is like, when you have sex with somebody, it's like super glue. It's like intertwined. It's like scrambled eggs that can't be sorted out or unscrambled. It's, it's kind of permanent that, that you will always, no matter what, leave a piece of yourself and your soul behind. Now, maybe you're thinking like, come on, man. Like, I, I, I know it's maybe more than just physical, but it's, I'm not uniting with anybody. It's just sex to which God would say, you think that because you actually don't understand it. 
See, it's not just physical. Your body and your soul aren't separate. They're connected. What you do with one impacts the other. And honestly, we all intuitively know this, right? I mean, if it were just a physical act, why does it impact us so deeply, right? Why do so many of us have so many regrets around unhealthy sexual experiences or decisions? Why is there so much pain and damage caused to the human being that's connected to sexual abuse? Because it's not just something that happened to their body. It's more than that. It's deeper. And so Paul finishes his thought by echoing something that Jesus said in Matthew 19 when he says the two will be one flesh. So in Matthew 19, this is what Jesus said. He says, some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I wish, I so wish we had, I had time to explain why they asked this question, but we don't have time. Jesus replied, haven't you read he, at, at the beginning, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus starts out by saying the same thing Paul did. He, he, he says the same word, that it unites us, right? That, that you're united. But then he gives more context than Paul did, right? He goes into the one flesh, right? He says, when we have sex, we become one flesh. In other words, the picture is being fused together at the deepest level of your being. Meaning that the lines between you blur, that you're fully wrapped up and intertwined with the other person, See, that, that's why the Old Testament euphemism for sex is to know because you're fully seen, you're fully known. You've become one and you can't be unwound. See, sex is way too powerful for us to treat it so casual. So I think there's part of that like one flesh thing that, that's kind of a mystery to us. It's been a mystery to us. We we don't get fully what it means. But there's also part of it where I think science is catching up and explains a little bit of it, right? Science is catching up to what God's been telling us all along. And here's what I mean. There's three main chemicals that are released in your brain during sex. Number one is dopamine. You probably heard of dopamine. Dopamine is the chemical in your brain that just makes you happy, right? It makes you feel good when you do something exciting. It makes you wanna do that thing again. Um, It's known as the addiction chemical of the brain, Dopamine is what fires in your brain whenever you get a text. Like dopamine, but when you have sex, your brain floods with it. So that's the first one. Secondly is a chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a bonding chemical that's found primarily in women, although it's found in both men and women. It's released by physical touch, whether it's hand holding or hugging, etc. cetera. Um, but there are explosive amounts of it that hit your brain when you have sex with somebody. And then finally, the third chemical is a chemical called vasopressin. It's the bonding chemical that's primarily found in men. In fact, it's so powerful and so strong, researchers call it the monogamy molecule because it bonds men to and causes them to become protective of whoever they have sex with. See, God created sex in a way that it unites and bonds us together emotionally and spiritually and physically and relationally. And here's the problem with all of this is that your brain and your brain chemicals don't differentiate between one night stands and married sex, between casual sex and lifelong soulmate sex. 
It's all the same chemicals going off, right? So the more people that we sleep with, the more emotional and relational and spiritual fallout that we experience. And so what happens is it begins to hollow us out. Why? Why does that happen? Because God hates sin and is mad at us and punishes us for doing that? No, it's because we have repeatedly fused ourselves together with people and then we're repeatedly broken apart from them. How could it not damage our soul? That is why there's so much conversation in the scriptures about not having sex outside of marriage. That's why the apostle Paul actually, he puts it this way, the Bible-y version of, of, of what we're talking about here is he says, every other sin that you can commit, it, you commit outside your body. But if you sin sexually, you're actually damaging yourself. You're sinning against your own self because you're causing yourself to be fused together with someone only to be ripped apart. See, God actually puts boundaries around things to raise our experience of them, not to ruin it, to protect us from pain, not to prevent our pleasure. So let me say it again. Sex is way too powerful for us to treat it so casual, but it's true in more than one, in more than just the way that I've been talking about. See, the entire conversation in church around sex is almost exclusively about the problem of sexual activity outside of marriage. But there is another problem that I think is just as big, and that is the problem of sexual inactivity inside of marriage. See, the, the first one says like, it's no big deal who you do it with. The second one says, it's no big deal if you do it at all. But that's not at all what God tells us. And he actually addresses both sides of the problem in Proverbs chapter five. Look at this. It says, drink water from your own well. I've heard this scripture a million times and we always ignore what the intent and the actual topic of the conversation is. But it says, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Okay, so that is a really nice sort of poetic Old Testament way of saying, if you're not married or if you're not married to them, keep it in your pants. He goes on, next couple of verses. This is like, so that's the first problem. Now he's addressing the second problem. He says, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for, for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts, by the way, I did a little bit of research this week. I looked at the original Hebrew and it literally, that word that gets translated to breasts, it literally means boobies, okay? Like, let her breasts satisfy you always. You do not get this kind of biblical insight at any other church, you guys, trust me. <laughs> May you always be captivated by her love. See, our culture's view is that marriage is where great sex goes to die. But not only is that not true, that's not what God wants for you. So verse 19, that last verse where he says, let her, you know, let her breast satisfy you always, right? That, like, that's not just a simple turn of phrase. Every single word of it is actually packed with significance. So he says, let, meaning let this happen, make this happen, strive for this, work towards this. This is what you should be working towards, her one and only one person and nobody else. And it's written to men, but it's intended for all of us. Let her breast, meaning the body of your spouse, especially your favorite parts, the good parts. Satisfy, be fully enraptured and fulfilled by you, you and nobody else but you, always till death do you part. 
And this is not like, well, that's a cool little like poetic thing in Proverbs and those are Old Testament. Well, it's all over the scriptures. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, in that same letter, that same book the apostle Paul wrote that, uh, about, you know, to the church about Aphrodite's temple and being united with a, a prostitute. This is what he says in the very next chapter. He's speaking down to uh, married couples. He says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And so if you're married, you have two options, having sex or praying a lot. Like it's just, those are, okay, I'm kidding, sort of, all right. The point is when you're married, it's supposed to be an ongoing regular experience for you. Now, I know there are all kinds of footnotes and qualifiers, and this isn't all of them, but let me just kind of shotgun a few of these things. And if you've been married a long time, this is stuff you know, or maybe it's stuff you forgot. If you haven't, I'm just kind of assuming no matter what stage of life you're in, like we're all starting with a, as a blank slate. So I'm just going to say some of this stuff. And again, if it applies to you, great, grab onto it. If it doesn't, just reject it and, you know, whatever. Let me just shotgun a few things out. First, sex can't fix a bad relationship. Sooner or later, you have to stop touching and start talking, right? If the, the sex in your marriage isn't what it used to be, figure out why and go deal with and solve and process through those issues. Obviously, the other thing, not everybody has the same drive, but here's the deal. If you're married, you are each other's outlet for satisfying one another. That's just the reality. So you might wanna have a conversation about that. You might want to actually talk about that. You might want to talk about the needs and expectations. I was reading this week, the number one reason that married people cite for not having sex that often is no connection. But when you peel back that, why they have no connection, the the reasons they list for that is busyness, stress, and exhaustion. Literally, the pace of their life is killing their intimacy and their connection with their spouse and their sex life. They don't have a marriage problem. They have a busyness problem. So look, you might actually need to put it on the calendar. In our family, if it ain't on the calendar, it don't happen. So I know that sounds really unromantic and unsexy, but it works. And the reason it works is because it forces you to put time and energy into planning it, to make intimacy and connection a priority. It's not a task on a you know, task sheet. Remember, this is way too powerful for us to just be like, ah, just put it in the corner. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. I promise you, if you're married, if it's not a big deal to you, you should actually talk to your spouse. Also, it's just, I hate to say this, but it's just not gonna be awesome every time. Sometimes it's going to be pretty good. Sometimes it's going to be okay. Sometimes you can take your time. Sometimes you got to be quick. Sometimes you're tired and stressed or distracted. Sometimes you're mad at each other. And sometimes it's even better when you're mad at each other because makeup sex is awesome. By the way, guys, for a woman, sex starts in her head and moves into her body, which means that the way to her body is through her brain. So you should actually, I don't know, maybe try to woo her a little bit, maybe romance her a little bit like you did when you were trying to win her. Also, it means that sometimes the most sexual thing that you can do is take care of the bills and wash the dishes and take care of dinner and the kids. Can I get an amen, ladies? Okay. Why? Because the way to her body is through her mind. 
ladies, is the opposite for men. Sex starts in his body and moves to his head. The way to his brain is through his body. You wanna engage him or get him to talk? He will be an open book after you have sex with him. Get the kids out of the bed, get the dog out of the room and make his dreams come true. And he will open up and you might not be glad he did because you might not be able to get him to shut up if you talk to him after having sex. The point is that this should be a regular part of your marriage, no strings attached. Don't withhold or manipulate your spouse with sex because it's both a sign of and a key to having a healthy marriage. It shows that the other things in your relationship, trust and connection and transparency and commitment and security, that all those things are strong and present in your relationship. For many of us, the reason why we've gotten bored with their body is because we stopped exploring their soul. If you just begin to explore the depths of who they are again, the sex will follow. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect them. Don't come to the table looking to take. Because sex is way too powerful for us to treat it so casually, like it doesn't matter. So the question we should all be asking ourselves this morning is this, like what, when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to sex in my life, is this something that I need to deprioritize or reprioritize to put it in its proper place? To begin to recognize the gift that God has given me, but it's also this powerful thing in my life. So if you are single and not married, for you, that might look like or probably looks like that you actually need to have some boundaries, like not having sex outside of the boundaries God established, which is marriage. If you're married, reprioritizing, that might look like having, making a commitment to having more and better sex. A few years ago, there was a study, and it was not done by church. It was like, it's just a, it was not a church thing. It wasn't a spiritual thing. It was just a study done of people and the demographic in our culture who are the most satisfied with their sex lives. And it was not even close. It's old married people. I mean, it's not, you, in our culture, you watch, the, everybody thinks it's like young, hot people that their bodies are stacked and they, their hormones are raging and they're just getting it on. And it's, no, it's completely dissatisfying. It's old married people that are the most satisfied with their sex. Because, you get better with time and with practice. You learn each other's bodies and likes and dislikes. You can experiment and laugh and explore and have fun and build trust and create a history. It, sex is a dance and the more you dance with the same partner, the more you think and move as one. Your marriage and your sex life are what you make them. It will work if you work at it. I, I think a lot of times when we experience pain and mess and brokenness, not just with sex, but in relationships and love and marriage, like there's so much shame built around it, especially when it comes to like God and faith and the church. And so we, we tend to feel like, well, it's just, it's too late for me. It's too late for me to start over. It's too late for me to redo this. It's too late for me to be happy. It's too... And maybe you're here and, you know, you've experienced some of those regrets that I was talking about a little bit a while, a little while ago, right? And you're like, these truths are really helpful, but it's just too late for me to change or to try something different. 
But one of the things I love about the scriptures, one of the things I love about God, one of the things I love about Jesus is that God never says that to anybody in the scriptures about anything. There's not a single time where he tells anybody, well, it's too late for you. Instead, Jesus always had a different phrase that he said, from now on. You may have done it that way in the past. You may have screwed some things up. You may have hurt yourselves and others, but from now on, do this. From now on, you can start fresh. From now on, you can choose to grow. From now on, you can choose to do things differently. From now on, you can honor your spouse. From now on, you can honor yourself and your own body. From now on, it's not too late. It doesn't matter what, what, what the baggage and the pain and the brokenness and the junk of the past or even in the present. You might have to process through that, but from now on, you can actually grow and get better. That this can be the beautiful gift that God intended for it to be between you and your spouse. It can be the thing that brings you together and continues to fuse you together for the rest of your life. So what is it that God might be saying to you this morning? What's the conversation that you not only need to have with yourself, that you need to have with God, but that if you're with someone, if you're married, if you're dating, you need to have that conversation with that person. Where are you gonna begin? Let's take a moment, let's pray together. And maybe the best place to begin is by you just beginning to have this conversation with God and inviting God into a place where it just seems like it would be the farthest thing from where God would be, your sex life, your sexuality. When, in act, when, when the truth is, it's actually the exact opposite. That what you see when you read all the way through the scriptures is that God is right in the middle of married people having sex, celebrating, and he's right that there's something deeply spiritual as those two people and their bodies and their souls mingle together. And God is right there in the middle celebrating over them because that is what he gave to us. Let's pray.